If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, we'll be reading just three verses today, verses 6, 7, and 8. These minor prophets, as they're called, we can sometimes think of them as though they're less important and so they were thus named, or that they have somehow less significant messages to give. And So unlike Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, these other men in our eyes sometimes might seem lesser, or the books that they wrote at least, but they were, they were called and are called the minor prophets simply because their books are shorter. That's really all it comes down to. A label that man has given to these works and to these books of these minor prophets, Micah being one of them. But there are treasures here like there are treasures in all of Scripture. And I pray that today something will be said from these few verses of this short book that will encourage you today toward a a knowledge of God, and if you already know Him, a greater knowledge of Him. The question I want to ask as we begin is, what does God want from you? What does God want from you? He certainly doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need anything from me. But what does He want? What does God want from you? How do we please Him? How do we walk in a way that is right in His eyes? What does He want? God has told us what He wants again and again in the Word. He's told the Israelites. He had told them many times, all the way back to Deuteronomy. Micah is, as we read this, he's quoting, in a sense, what God had said in Deuteronomy and in Numbers, and in Leviticus, and certainly in Exodus, and even back in Genesis, talking to Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and all of those who ever know him, he has told them what he wants from us. And he has told you what he wants from you. And I just want to bring it to your attention today. I pray that the Spirit of God will bring it to your attention today. What does He want? What does God desire from us? What does God require of man? Now, in the book of Micah, before we read these verses, Micah is a minor prophet living in the time shortly before the exile to Babylon, and he's he's bringing the bad news to Israel in in a number of these first five chapters. He's telling them, Our disobedience of God is going to end in an exile. We're going to be taken out of this land of promise. God is going to draw us out of this place. This is inevitable at this point. Micah's message, Amos' message, Nahum, all of these prophets that foretold and said, this is coming. They were told that because God had told them that message and Micah is living in a time where the northern kingdom of Israel will shortly fall and he is prophesying to them and also prophesying to Judah of the exile that is heading their way and Israel had clearly done a lot of things wrong and so this is the the context of this these verses this the question becomes What then does God require of us? As they've been notified, you have fallen short. You have failed what God has called you to do and to be. You are unrighteous in His sight. And all the while, they were offering sacrifices and burnt offering at the temple and following all of the obligations that the ceremonial law gave. All the while, worshiping God in the outward sense that God had given to them to do. And and the question then comes and arises, what then does God require? And so they begin to contemplate that. And that is part of what's going on here in verse 6 when it says, 
With what shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, which, by the way, was considered and thought to be the, the perfect sacrifice, the most precise time that a calf would be at the appropriate time to be sacrificed. So am I to bring these burnt offerings with a calf a year old? Is that what God requires? Verse, 11, verse 7, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you. So here's the answer. Here's the answer to verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord? Verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The Israelites find themselves on this day outside of the pleasure of God. And in order to move into the place of being pleasing to God, something is required. And they're asking, with what? Am I to go to God? What am I to bring to Him? What does He want from me? And the Israelites had done a lot of things wrong. And we could recount them. And we've studied many of those things. The idolatry in the land. They were not treating one another justly. They were not loving one another as God had called them to do. They were doing a lot of things wrong. But they held on yet to a few right assumptions. And I don't want us, as we begin today, to miss what those assumptions were. There are some things assumed in their question that I don't know is any longer assumed on our part today. They assumed some things that were right in their question. Though they had a lot wrong with their thinking, though they had strayed once again far from God, Though in many ways they thought like the world, they acted like the world, they looked in many ways just like the world, though all of these things were true and this was completely contrary, by the way, for the reason that God had called them to be His people, His purpose was to bless them, yes, but to show the world who He was. But when they began to act and to look and to think, just like the rest of the world, that witness just disappeared. People could no longer look at Israel and see Jehovah. They saw a nation lost in idolatry, just like all the other nations. And though this was true, this was a constant problem for the Israelites. And here in Micah's day, the clock is ticking to the Babylonian exile continues to be a problem even for God's people today. One of the worst indictments against Christianity is that we look so much like the rest of the world. And this was true for Israel at this time as well. So there's a distance, there's a separation that is between God's people and God. And they come and they ask, what does God want from us? What does God require of us. And so they're a distance again. They have fallen once again. And it's just this repeated pattern of disobedience and then repentance. And then God blesses and they're in His presence once again. And He prospers them and they take their eyes off of Him and they fall again into disobedience and rebellion. And that's where they are once again. And they want and they desire, at least in some respects, or they're asking the question, how can I be made right with God? And maybe you're asking the same question. Or maybe you know someone who has this question. How can I be made right with God? What does He want? What does He expect? What does He require? And as they begin to answer this question, 
they answer it with some assumptions that are good. What are those assumptions? Well, they at least maintain a hold on the reality that if they were to approach God, it would involve bowing. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God? There was at least an assumption still, an understanding, a sense of the superiority of God. An assumption of God's ownership of all that they had and all that they were. An assumption as well and an acknowledgement even that they had sinned against God. This is assumed in their question and in their proposed answers. There's an assumption here that in order for me to come before God, in order for man to come before God, it will involve a bowing a kneeling, a humbling of ourselves before Him. And I don't know that today that is an automatic assumption like it was at least seemingly for Israel. I don't know today that the average person has in their mind an assumption that they must bow before God, that they must be humble before Him. This assumption that is in the Israelites is not nearly as automatic for us today. So today we must start in a step before the Israelites and remind ourselves that before we can approach God, one thing at the very beginning, one thing that's necessary at the outset in order to approach God is a humility that is willing to bow the knee. To bow before Him, to approach Him in humility. And there must be an assumption on our part that it will be our knee that hits the ground and not God's. That it will be our humility that will allow us to come into the presence of God. Pride and an unwillingness to submit to God as our Creator, our King, our Master has stopped many people from ever entering God's presence. An unwillingness to bow the knee. An unwillingness to admit that He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who called all things into existence. So many people unwilling to humble themselves and bow before this God. I beg you today, don't be one of those people. Don't be unwilling to bow the knee. Be ready to bow and bow quickly. So there is an assumption here in the beginning of this requirement of humility. And there is another assumption. As they make it, what shall I come, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? A second assumption here is that there is, that God is on high. So they knew that to approach God's presence was to go somewhere higher than their present position. To come before God, you're going to have to come to a place so far higher than you could ever go, than you have ever been. There is an assumption that He is on high, that we need to come to Him, and He condescends to us. I understand that and I know that, but we must understand that to approach God's presence was to go to a place higher than their normal, their present position. So isn't it interesting, in that one turn of phrase, There's a picture here that in order to ascend to God, to go to a place higher than we are, what was the method to get there? Was it to climb the mountain? Was it to stand tall? Was it to reach high? No, it wasn't. It was, again, to bow down. To be humble so that God might lift lift them up and exalt them. We must bow. There's so much irony 
in the fallen human understanding. So much irony. We think to be great, we must be served by others. We think to be somebody important, we must be honored by others. But in truth, according to God's word, to be great is to be a servant of others. To exalt ourselves is impossible and to reach to reach God. To, to do something so magnificent that God's impressed with us is not the, the voice and the word of Scripture. That's not how we get there. We think to be rich, we must gain the wealth of the world. But to truly be rich, we must be freed from the desire of the wealth of the world. It's so much irony in our fallen mind and we have to consider that age-old question, do I have my money or does my money have me? Do I have my worldly desires or do my worldly desires have me? Am I truly free or am I a prisoner to these things? To reduce ourselves and to humble ourselves before God is an assumption that they at least intellectually understood. Sometimes we think we are prisoners. Sometimes we think we are prisoners to something outside of ourselves when in reality we're prisoners to what's inside. These things that lead us away from God and not toward Him. Prisoners of a hopeless search for meaning and hope in the things of this world. This constant search for something here to satisfy. Something in this world to fill that empty spot in our hearts. Something here in this life to finally make us feel safe and secure. Something, a relationship, money, power, position, citizenship in a certain country. Something here to make us feel confident and secure and held. And so we go out into the world and we search for these things and we think that we are the one in control and that we are the one that has and possesses things when so often it is those things that have and possess us. You've all heard the quote, no doubt, of working with people we don't like, doing things we hate to do, to buy things we don't need. Describes so much of life. Thinking and hoping and praying that something in this life will fill us, that we can be made right and that the world can be made right if we just go out and seek the things here. Haggai tells us in verse 6 of chapter 1, you've sown much. You've sown much. Planted much. You've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. One of my favorite verses. In our early days being married, when Sarah and I would notice that there was a little bit of money in the bank, we, we started getting perhaps a little cynical, but we would say, well, I wonder what's going to break. Something's going to break. Sometimes we go throughout our life and we do so many different things and, and yet we don't get anywhere. And the question ultimately is, what does God require from us? You know, as we go throughout our lives and as Haggai said what he said in a similar way, we think bowing before God makes us pathetic and lowly creatures when in reality it is the only way we will ever be able to scale the mountain to God is on our knees in prayer. Not in pride and self-sufficiency, 
Listen to what God has said in His Word. Isaiah 57.15 For thus says the One who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and I also with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. That's who God is near. That's who God dwells with. This is an insight early on into what God requires. I dwell in the high and holy place. And yet, though I dwell in that high and holy place, I also dwell with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God is on high. But in order for us to get to Him, We must be lowly and humble and contrite and broken. Psalm 145.14 The Lord upholds all who... And don't we want to know the rest of the story here? Don't we feel a great need to be upheld by God because we know that if He does not uphold us, we will not be held? We know that if He does not hold us, we will not be able to stand? We know that even if He does not give us the strength and the power to work and to walk and to move, we will not go anywhere. This is what the psalmist said, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. If you desire to be in God's presence, if you want to know what He expects, what He requires. If you desire to know Him, but you feel as though the harder you try, the less near He is, then I recommend you check your knees. Are you bowing? Or are you striving to reach Him on your feet? Are you thinking that in your pride you can approach Him? and that He will accept you. Check your knees if God is at far distance from you. my own life, I can tell you that's true. There's little that stands between God and man more than pride. And when we want to go up to Him, the path is down for us. And to our knees in prayer. So at least... There is something of an appropriate starting point in the mind of Israel. They've been taught well enough to know at least these things. If I'm going to get an answer to my question, what does God require of me? I'm going to first have to remember that I'm going to have to bow before Him, that He is on high, and He upholds those who bow themselves before Him. So at least there's that. But that's where they're thinking their right thinking stops. And the wrong thinking begins. Even though there was something of a right starting point here, they quickly reveal their ignorance of what God really requires through the suggestions that they make. And they they ask it, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? So these good assumptions. Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? Shall I come and approach God with ritual and ceremony and outward service, traditions and customs? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? In a way, here the Israelites reveal their knowledge of what God had commanded them to do in the law. They understood what He had said and they speak it and they say, is this what God requires of us? And God had given the nation of Israel these instructions for the sacrificial system. He had told them, this is what I want you to do. He had given them the whole law. He had given them the whole pattern of sacrifice. He had told them over and over and clearly again in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and the rest of the law. He had told them what He required of them by way of sacrifice. But the sacrificial system alone was not what God ultimately required. Hosea 6.6 God says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You know that Israel suggests the giving of a burnt offering 
that they suggest this? Is this what God requires of me? Does it not reveal their knowledge that God had commanded sacrifices from them? Yet this question continues to be asked. There's this underlying question. It reveals a sense, I believe, that there must be more to it than the mere offering of burnt offerings and sacrifices. And for you and me, it is the same. It's got to be more. There's a sense here. There's a reading between the lines. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? It's almost like they're saying, we've done that and it's not worked. We've gone through the exercises. We go weekly. We go annually and when we're supposed to. We observe the feast and the fellowship. We do these sacrifices. The Levites continue their work day by day in the temple. Is this what God requires? Isn't there something of an unspoken, is that it? And it doesn't seem to be working. It's not getting me where I want to go. For you and me, it is the same. Isn't there something inside all of us that senses, believes, perhaps even demands that there must be more of what God requires than our mere outward religious service? Isn't there something inside of you that knows that? That realizes that? What does God require of me? God, what do you want from me? Do you want me to come to church on Sunday? Is that what you want? Do you want me to write a check to my church every week and give of my time and my money and all of these things? Is this what you want? And there's unspoken there. Is that it? God, what do you want from me? There's something inside all of us, I believe, that knows that there's more than this mere outward religious experience. How many people who have been good outward Christians their whole lives, still ask this question, God, what do you want? God, what do you want? I've done all this good stuff. I was taken to church in in my mother's womb first, you might say. My first attendance at church, I heard from inside my mother's womb. And since then, God, I've rarely missed a service. But still these people wonder, what does God require? What does He really want? I've been a good person all my life. God, I've helped people. Maybe you've lived an honest life. You've taken care of those who depend on you. But you still wonder, God, what do you want? What, God, do you want from me? Is it Mere ceremony? God, are you pleased? Are you okay with me if if I just make sure I come to church for a couple of hours on Sundays? Because I think there is within every last one of us an understanding that we know that surely there's got to be more than that. God, do you want me to read my Bible for ten minutes every day? Do you want me to just be a good person? Do you want me to get baptized? Do you want me to do the thing? of the outward Christian religion? Is that not the same place these Israelites were? Does He require sacrifice? And it's almost an unsaid, because we've done that. And yet here we are, headed for exile. And today, the Christian nation of the United States, we can say, church services have been held every Sunday. It's never stopped. God, what do you want? Because apparently, there's more that you want. God, there's more seemingly that you want because what we've been doing doesn't seem to be enough. Perhaps you've gone on like this. Perhaps people, there's some that have gone on like this, asking this question, never coming to the answer, and they've gone that way so long that they've given up that there is more. And so they just, out of habit and routine, They get up on Sunday morning and they go attend their church and they listen to the preacher and they go home and nothing has changed at all. Because they've given up hope, perhaps. Given up on anything genuine. And they cling to their outward righteousness with the deep, desperate hope of dying men and women that somehow it will be enough. All the while knowing inwardly there's got to be more. 
God, do you require sacrifice? Is that what you want from me? Or perhaps you're not that person who's just given up hope, as horrible as that is. And I want to tell you, by the way, there is more, and it is a wonderful thing. So hold on with me for a while. But perhaps you're not one who's just given up hope. Perhaps you're in a different sad state. Maybe you've convinced yourself that you really are as good as you think you are because you attend church on Sunday. Because you do all these outward things. You compare yourself with the world and feel that you've come out on top 90% of the time and surely at least 10% of the people will go to heaven. Maybe you think that way. I remind you that the words, the most harsh words that our Lord had for anyone in His earthly ministry was for people just like that. And I believe that these verses in Micah were in the Lord's mind when He spoke these words to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Does that not sound familiar to what we just read in Micah? You've done these other things, he says. You've done them and you've done them outwardly and maybe even if we can elaborate, you've done them impressively. People have noticed but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done. What is that? The tithes. The, 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 the things that they did outwardly. They should have done those things. But they ought not, as Jesus says, without neglecting the others. Again, the harshest words Jesus ever spoke to men were to Pharisees. Men who believed themselves righteous because of their own righteous deeds. But Jesus repeats Micah and reminds them that even in the law they claimed to follow, they'd been told what God truly requires. Now, as a word of quick caution to us, do not mistake what Micah is saying and what Jesus said. We should not throw away the outward service. I am not contending that we should get rid of the Sunday service. That we should remove the midweek Bible study. That we should get rid of baptisms. That we should get rid of these things. I'm not saying that at all. But we should understand that those things are supposed to be coming from a place that is inward, not outward. Not just checking a box. The outward service is what the unbelieving world can see. So without the outward service, the world would not see God. So I'm no way and in no mean, by no means am I suggesting and nor do I believe the Scripture suggests that we throw away the sacrificial system. We ought to go to church. We ought to go to church. The world sees it, notes it, understands what you are saying by doing so, at least outwardly. We ought to give of the resources we've been given to, to, the, to give it to the Lord's service. We ought to read the Scripture. We ought to help one another. Don't forget that we ought to do these things, but don't forget as well that the purpose of these outward things is to show men what they cannot see, which is inward, the heart. But surely we can all agree that God is not in need of these outward services to see what's in your heart. That's what James was talking about. I'm going to show you my faith by what I do. He didn't say, I'm going to show God my faith by what I do. He said, I'm going to show men, you, my faith. So we shouldn't get rid of them. But make no mistake, God doesn't need to see them to know what's going on inside. So ceremony, ritual, outward service, that's not the requirement. It's not what God requires. It's part of our service to Him, but it's not ultimately what He requires. And so they move on to what we might call Bribery. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with the calf a year old? And now they up the ante in verse seven. Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand with thousands of rams? 
with ten thousands of rivers of oil, sensing here that their sacrifices had not really put them in a place of acceptance with God, their next suggestion is that perhaps they should bribe God with sacrifices so extravagant and over the top that surely he will accept them. Let's not give God just one ram. Let's give him a thousand. Surely that'll be enough. Maybe that's what God requires. Not just a little bit of oil, but 10,000 of rivers of oil. Surely, if we sacrifice this much, God will be pleased. And that, surely, will meet His requirements. Surely, if we give God such a fortune, He will forgive us our sin. Just buy Him off. There is in the Israelites' suggestion here no doubt a sense of hyperbole. The vast majority, probably 99.9% of Israel couldn't even have done such a thing. So there's a sense of hyperbole, but their point seems to be, does God require great sacrifice? Can I buy His acceptance? You know, one of our greatest mistakes about God is that we think what works with us works with Him. It's been said that every man has a price. A price at which they would be willing to sacrifice their honor, their integrity, their family, even their name. They say every man has a price. I hope it's not true, but I believe it probably is in a large part. Make no mistake, though, my friend, there is no such price with God. You have nothing that He needs. And so don't come to God and say, God, what do you need from me? The question is not, God, what do you need from me? The question is, even here, what do you want from me? Psalm 50, we read this, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me, God says. It's not why I'm rebuking you. He's saying to Israel in a sense, it's not why you're going into captivity. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So not just the normal, typical sacrifices seem to be what God requires. And not even if you up that ante to a price so great, none of us could pay it. No outward service then, no matter how extravagant or costly it might be, it it doesn't seem to do. It doesn't seem to answer the question, God, what do you require? And then they up the ante again, and we'll speak on this for just a moment. Second half of verse 7, Shall I give my firstborn? For my transgression? <clears throat> Shall I give my firstborn for my sin? God, is that what you require? The final suggestion has moved to the realm of must I give everything that is dear to me to be accepted by God? The things that are most dear to me, have I got to have I got to let those go? Now there's a unique danger here that I want you to tune into. There's a unique danger, and it has to do with the way people can begin to think when they realize that no gift to God, no amount of service to Him, no outward sacrifice, no matter how large will place them in fellowship with God, they can begin to think, well then, 
I guess to be right with God, I must sacrifice everything that is dear to me. That if I show God my dedication to Him by killing everything else I hold dear, He will finally be pleased. There's a danger here. Because we talk like this sometimes without knowing it, I think. All this comes down to is more of the same. More attempts to appease God with our works. An attempt to show God and others just how serious we are. Just how righteous we are. This is not what God desired. In fact, in this case, the sacrificing of their children, God had expressly forbidden human sacrifice in the law. Killing others, just as an aside here, the world we live in today, I think it's necessary to say at times when you have an opportunity, killing others as a sacrifice to a God, small g, is not what God requires. This is a thing that the pagan world does, not Jehovah. Not the God of this Bible. He expressly forbids it. Killing anyone else in the name of pleasing God, it's not of God. But we can think this way. And we can think that maybe if I empty my hands of all that is dear to me, God will accept me. Emptying your hands, though, of all that is dear to you as well. This still, listen, this still is not the answer to the question, what does God require of me? And we've heard that many times, and I know what we mean by it, but I want us to think about it for just a minute here. You can empty your hands of everything you own and still miss the right answer. You can let go of absolutely everything. Emptying your hands of all that is dear to you is not what God requires of you. What He desires instead, according to this passage and many others like it, is for you to hold all those things in a very different way and for a very different reason than you are holding them today. We've all heard testimonies, have we not, of people who had said they had to give up something. And I understand that. Don't misunderstand. I am not saying that that is not what happened. I, I believe it and I trust it. I've heard, you know, one boy, little boys, you know, say I had to give up my bike. But the interesting thing is that in a day or two, they're riding that bike after being saved. Right? We've heard that. I've, a husband, I had to give up my job. And he was back at the office a few hours after being saved. What, what does this mean? What are we saying when we, when we say we had to, quote, give up these things at salvation? What we're saying is more about how we hold them, not that we no longer hold them. And the difference is what these things become to us. Before, we loved the things we had. After, when we truly are in the presence of God, what God really wants us to do, what He really asks of us, is to hold these things and be thankful and, and, and offer our praise to the One who gave them to us. So before we loved the things we had, after we loved the One who had given them. But I still hold them. I just hold them very differently. I still love them. Oh, I love them dearly. My children, my wife. You know that love. But that love must be one of thankfulness to the one who gave them. Not a love that supersedes the giver for the gift. Listen, and I'll close soon. Everything in your life, and this may be itself hyperbole. I don't think so. I've been turning it around in my head. Not that that means much. Everything in your life is either a cause of worship to God or it's an idol. Everything. Everything in your life is either something that you hold and you say, 
God, thank you for this. What a loving God you are. But this is not going to supersede my love for you. Everything in your life is either a cause of worship to God or it's an idol. Let that sink in. Think about it. And then consider all the things in your life. God isn't asking you to get rid of everything in your life. He's not asking these Israelites to sacrifice their children. He's asking you, though, to stop holding them as idols and start holding them as reasons to worship, love, and praise Him. That's the mistaken logic of the Israelites. And we'll fly through what the answer truly is. What does God require? Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with Him. What a beautiful passage of Scripture. The old Jewish teachers used to say this was the one sentence summary of all the law. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with Him. Other passages, other translations, I should say, you know, it's, it's seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Do justice. Do right by your fellow man. Do right by him or her. What a mockery of God these Israelites made when they offered their outward service to God while they treated their fellow man unfairly and unjustly. What a mockery of God they made. This goes on far too much in the world today. Men singing praises to God on Sunday and with the same vocal cords cursing men on Monday. Do justice. Live your life justly. In every way that you can, be a just person. Love kindness, which is this this commitment to following mercy and love. We, As we seek to do justice and render due reward for right behavior and due punishment for wrong behavior, we must carry out that justice with hearts full of mercy and kindness and love. I am amazed at God who can be just and loving at the same time. It's incredible what He's done in Jesus Christ. That He can be just and the justifier of those who are sinners, you and me. The balance of justice and mercy is a central theme in the Scripture. It ought to be a central theme in the life of a child of God. It is a balance to be struck in doing both at the same time. Justly with hearts of mercy and love. And to walk humbly with Him. Live your life in humility. I don't say this. I don't say this to say anything about me, but it was a blessing when I read it. You all know we've had this company by us, and there were evidently recommendations made to certain people in this new company about people, and, and I wasn't supposed to read this, but I have access now to some documents. Long story short, my boss had recommended me to them, and one of the things he put, it was just a bullet at the end, humble. And I thought, God, thank you that that's an attribute that they see. And I don't deserve to be seen in a positive light, God, because I'm not humble like I ought to be. But thank you that you've allowed that to be an attribute. And may it continue to be so and more so. Live humbly with your God, whether He's anybody else's or not. With your God. Doesn't require anybody else to follow Him. I don't require anybody else to love Him. He's my God. He's not just somebody else's. Now, as we close, don't miss the comfort. Do you hear the comfort here? What if, just imagine, you are an Israelite in this day and you've been told by the prophet himself, we're headed to exile. God's taken us out of this land. We're no longer going to walk the streets of Jerusalem. We're no longer going to walk down the road and boy, there's the temple and we can do all the things God has called us to do. We won't have that option. So how am I going to be made right with God then? How can I serve God in Babylon? 
If that's not been a question for you in the United States over the last 20 years, you haven't been paying any attention. How can I serve God in Babylon? He's just given you the answer. You don't need the temple. You don't need those things. You can do all of these things. Love and seek justice. Love mercy and walk humbly with your God. You can do that anywhere and in any circumstance. So there is hope and comfort to be found in that reality. They surely took comfort from that. This is good news. You can give God what He requires. You can. I read one man who wrote about these passages of Scripture specifically in regard to that statement, Does God want my firstborn? And he talked about the willingness of man to do the extreme things that God never asked for and not do the things he clearly has asked for. There may be some extreme thing you're willing to do. Climb Mount Everest. Cross the sea to carry Bibles. You may be willing to do a lot of really good things and yet not willing to do what he's actually asked. I pray that's not true for you. You need to do these things and you need to do them with a heart that God must change. You have to pray to God, God, change my heart. Change me. Make me a new creature in the likeness of your Son. The good news there, again, is that God specializes in doing just that. He changes hearts. If your heart needs changing, there's only one place for you to go. On your knees, humbly calling upon God until He lifts you up, pulls you to Himself, wraps His arms around you with the Holy Spirit and gives you peace and says, you're forgiven. It's well. Seek Him until you find Him. Don't seek Him through these outward things that the Israelites said. Are these the things that God wants and requires of me? It's not. God requires you. Your heart, your love, your trust, your obedience. Pray that God will be with His word. Let's have some.